Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're moving through a, a series uh, in the book of Revelation, the seven churches, these letters that went out to the seven churches, and we are in letter number three. Uh, thus far, uh, Peter has uh, talked with us about the letter to the Ephesians, and then last week uh, we had the letter to the church at Smyrna. And if you recall, if you've been tracking with us, that, that first uh, letter to the Ephesians was regarding losing their first love. And, and Peter kind of uh, focused in on their, they had kind of lost their passion for sharing their faith in Jesus and their story of what Jesus had done in their life. And then last week it was Smyrna, and the, and the big takeaway, at least for me as I was listening last week, was to persevere, uh, not well, not just to persevere in suffering, but to recognize, and this was the, the, the big statement that really struck me, is that your ministry is going to flow out of your suffering. Like, I know in the midst of our crisis or in the midst of a difficult time, that's probably the last thing that would be very encouraging to us. But I think most of us today that have kind of dealt with any kind of struggle or, or suffering in your life, recognize that when you do come out the other side and you recognize God's presence in the midst of it, it does become foundational to how you can minister or be, have a testimony uh, for what God has done in your life. So that was, that was a, a, a big takeaway for me uh, last, last Sunday. But we're jumping in this week into the church at Pergamum. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But before we do that, I wanted to share, there is kind of a theme. Uh, of course, there are many themes that run through Scripture. But one of the big uh, themes that runs through Scripture from beginning to end is this idea of holiness. That God calls his people to be holy. And that the idea of holiness really means to be separate, to separate ourselves. He calls us out from the world to be different somehow uh, than the rest of the world. And, and so in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus chapter 19, we read this very statement. God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So he calls us to that kind of holiness. The chapter before, uh, God says this. He says, you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Do not follow their practices. In other words, you've got to be different. If you're going to be in this world, you're going to be my people. You're going to be different than what's happening uh, around you. And so in the New Testament, it sounds like this. Do not be conformed to this world or to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by having, the re by having your heart and mind renewed. So that's what it sounds like in the New Testament. We're called to this kind of uh, new way of living. And that's going to be an important thought as we run through this letter to the church at Pergamum. Uh, that idea of being holy or being separate or being different than the rest of the world. Before we get to that, though, I, this last week I had the opportunity to, to sit down uh, for lunch with a friend of mine. And in the course of our conversation, one of the things we talked about was, well, he's, he's training for one of those uh, Spartan races. And uh, we talked about our spiritual lives, how kind of they can parallel our physical lives sometimes when we're training and that kind of thing. And he made the statement that, uh, there's a difference between motivation and discipline. And it, so we started, I started thinking about that a little bit. And there, all of us are motivated to a certain degree about things. Like, you know, maybe the big class reunion's coming up and you want to look good. So there's 50 pounds you got to drop or whatever you think, you know. And I want to look good. I want those people to think I'm looking good. So there's a motivation. I mean, I, I, I want to give 
this impression that I've got my life together. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, uh, so I'm motivated. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Or we really want to be close to God. And so I want to do, there are certain things I want to do. I want to read my Bible. I want to pray more. And so there's a motivation there uh, that I want to do, I want to do better. So I, I, I just feel like uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. There's a, there's a problem, though, because eventually that motivation is going to run a little thin. We're going to run into our first obstacle, uh, like that donut that they give me on Sunday morning when I come into church, or whatever it might be. And there's, so there's these obstacles that, that come, and there comes a point where there's going to be a tension between my motivation and whether I'm going to be disciplined. And this is what he was pointing out. There's I've got to choose when my motivation runs thin, I've got to choose to be disciplined. And I took it a step further and I started thinking like, okay, when I come to that fork in the road, then I've got a choice of being disciplined or I can compromise. And I can say, well, the reunion's still a few months out or it's not that big a deal or whatever, whatever however I would justify it. So I'll choose to, to forego my discipline and I'll compromise. And so that, that tension, too, I want us to hold on to that because I think all of us, as we move through our lives, are, are going to come to that point where our motivation has served us well maybe to a point, and at some point I'm going to have to, to push into discipline a little bit. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see if that might apply uh, today. So we're going to look in Revelation chapter 2 at, at verses 12 uh, through 17. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, you want to click that open, that would be great. And I'm going to ask us, if you're able this morning, if you'd stand as we read uh, God's Word this morning, just out of reverence for the Word of God, stand with me as we read Revelation 2, 12 to 17. This is what it says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You may be seated. So as we've been going through this series, I've, I've been in a couple group situations where people have been asking, hey, wouldn't it be great if Peter uh, had a map on Sunday morning so we could see where these places were? And when I say people, I really mean Carrie Ruiz. <laughs> Carrie's the only one that's asked me about this. But to satisfy Carrie and maybe one other person that cares about this, uh, here's a map of the seven churches that we're going to see uh, through this series. And if you look at the bottom left, you see Ephesus. That's where we started. And, you, and Peter had mentioned how it kind of loops around. So this is where we're headed. We've got Smyrna and then Pergamum up at the top. And then next week, Thyatira. And we'll work our way back down there. That, uh, it, modern day, that is western uh, Turkey. And that's the Aegean Sea out there uh, to the left. So that gives you at least a little sense of, 
uh, where, this is, um, where this is happening. Uh, as our pattern has been, Peter mentioned that all of, these, all of these letters kind of follow the same basic pattern, that there's an introduction uh, to the city, there's a description of Jesus, and it kind of moves through. So we're going to w- kind of walk through that pattern this morning. This passage, for the most part, is pretty straightforward. I think it's pretty easy to understand what Jesus is saying to the Christians there. We're going to point out a couple uh, things that hopefully will be helpful. But let's just do a quick survey of of this passage. The first thing is Jesus addresses the city there in Pergamum. Uh, As all these cities are, all seven of these cities that are addressed by these letters are significant. They're, They're influential in their own way. And this is uh, definitely true of, of Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was a city in a, the Caicos Valley. There's a river that runs through this valley. Uh, Pergamum was built up on a, on a hill, so it was a, a beautiful place. I looked at some pictures this week of it. it just spectacular uh, views. Can, uh, can see 15 miles uh, clear to the, to the sea uh, from on top of the hill there. Beautiful uh, place. People there, uh, it was known for its wealth. Uh, but probably most important for our purposes this morning is that it was also known as a center. Uh, multiple centers of worship were uh, featured there in Pergamum. So let me just kind of go through. I think it's important to go through in some detail what was happening uh, there. So yeah, there in the city, there were temples to uh, Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine and pleasure and festivity. And I thought... You know, I'm not, a, I, I, at least not intentionally, I don't worship multiple gods. But if I was going to worship a god, I'm, the god of pleasure and festivity sounds kind of appealing to me. So I'm sure that was uh, true in that day. So there was the, the temple to Dionysus. Uh, there's a temple to Athena, the goddess of wisdom. There was also a healing, a, a mystical healing center uh, for the god of healing, uh, Asclepius. Uh, so that was uh, prominent there. There was a... Worship center for Demeter, the goddess of harvest and agriculture. And then there was two emperor worship temples for Augustus and for Trajan. And Peter mentioned last week that emperor worship featured prominently there in the first uh, century Roman world. Uh, so, you, I mean, if you just kind of recognize even that, uh, cap that all off, at the top of the hill there's a, a magnificent altar to the god Zeus. So they've covered all the bases here in Pergamum. And if you think about having a church there of a city of, at that time, uh, I think they're saying about 80,000 people lived uh, in this city, Uh, you can see that uh, there's quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit going on there. And so when Jesus addresses the city or or, uh, in addressing the city, calls it the place where Satan has his throne, it's pretty obvious he's referring to this this idea of pagan worship, what was happening uh, there in, in Pergamum. So we want to be aware of that. Uh, hold that in your thought. We're going to kind of come back to that in a second. So he addresses the city, and then we've got the description of Jesus. In, in this particular passage, Jesus is described as the one with the double-edged sword. Now, if you've been tracking with us, the, the first couple descriptions of Jesus uh, with Ephesus and with Smyrna were a little bit more warm, fuzzy, like they were, he's got the whole world in his hands, he's died, but he's come back to life. This is the Jesus that we like, that is victory over death. Uh, when we start, this, this picture of Jesus is not quite the same. This double-edged sword uh, strikes me as a little, being a little bit more intimidating 
And so I wanted to jump to the, towards the end of Revelation. In Revelation 19, listen to this description of Jesus. It says, I saw the heaven open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written this name, King of kings and Lord of lords. So this picture of Jesus is this conquering, war, judging, uh, which certainly is an aspect of what Jesus does. So when we think about Pergamum, uh, given the picture of Jesus with a double-edged sword, we recognize that there is and will come a time when Jesus will not be messing around with those uh, that are against him. So that's the picture that we, that we get. I think it's also interesting to note that Rome had given certain cities the ability, they called them cities of the sword, the ability to execute without really, a, they could just do it on spot, the proconsul could. Pergamum was one of those cities that had that uh, authority in the Roman world. So we've got the, the city, we've got the description of Jesus, and then as our pattern has shown all the way through, Jesus gives an affirmation or encouragement uh, to the people of Pergamum. And the first thing he says is, I, he says, I know where you live. And I, I think in these first two weeks, that's been the thing that I have found to be most comforting to me to, to recognize that Jesus knows where I live. He knows my circumstances. He knows your circumstances. So even this morning... Regardless of what you may be going through or what has been a problem or, or what you're dealing with, Jesus knows where you live. Now, there's a reverse side of that too, right? Jesus knows what we do. Right? So there's, I, I recognize that there is, that in itself is kind of double-edged. But I've been encouraged by the fact that Jesus knows where I live. And so he says to them, I know that you've stood firm in this city where Satan has his throne. You've remained faithful to my name. He encourages them. He says, listen, I know it's been difficult for you. And let's be clear, it couldn't have been easy to be a Christian in Pergamum. There's just, with, with all of that going on, and in my estimation, the Christian group being a definite minority within the city, there's no way that it could have been easy. There was social pressure for sure to stand for what they believed was true, and a very real physical danger. In fact, Jesus mentions in his affirmation of the church in Pergamum about Antipas, who had been executed, martyred for his faith. So there was a very real danger in being faithful in that day. And it also reminds me of what Peter had pointed out, I believe it was last week, he talked about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, that really that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but there's a spiritual battle going on. Ultimately, that is the battle that matters. It's going on right now in this world. It plays itself out in our physical experience in various ways, but this battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle that's happening uh, in the world, and certainly that's what was going on in Pergamum. So Jesus affirms 
their willingness to stand firm in the face of those difficult times. But he also says, as he said to the Ephesians, I have a few things against you. As good as you're doing, there's a few things that I have against you. And in particular, he mentions uh, two things. He mentions that there are some among you that hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you know your Old Testament, uh, Balaam's not a front and center story, but it's in the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers uh, chapter 21 to 25. If you want to make a note, you could read that later. But Balaam was a prophet. He got recruited by the king of Moab to come. The king of Moab was very concerned because the Israelite army was defeating all the nations around them, kind of had surrounded Moab. He was fearful for himself. So he recruited Balaam to come and curse the Israelite army. He was going to pay him money. He was going to give him great uh, wealth and uh, prosperity and uh, position. Um, so Balaam initially says, no, I can't go, but eventually does go. Realizes that he can't curse the Israelite army. But ultimately, as the story plays out, he tells King Balak that the way to go is to deceive or seduce the men of Israel to intermarry with the Moabite women. And this is what happens. So Balak, uh, they work to seduce the Israelite army, the Israelite men. They intermarry. They begin to practice uh, their idol worship and, and the sexual immorality. And there you see, if I can tie that back to this idea of God calling them out to be holy and separate, don't do the practices of the people around you, they've got sucked right in uh, to practicing what the nations around them were practicing. So that's the, that's the teaching of Balaam. And then the Nicolaitans, uh, as Peter has pointed out, uh, we don't know a lot about the specifics of what they were uh, teaching except that we know that idol worship was front and center in what was happening. So if I could boil down his, Jesus' rebuke of the, those in the Pergamon church that had gone wrong, it really has to do with them compromising their faith in the area of sexual immorality and idolatry. That those are the places that they had been, they had been enticed and drawn away from what is true. Now, I don't want in any way to minimize what was happening in the Pergamum church. We need to recognize that it's exactly as Jesus called it. Some of you have compromised and, move away, and moved away from what is true. But I do want to have a bit of compassion at this point with the Christians there. Because as I mentioned, first of all, I, they were in the minority. I got to believe that there was incredible social pressure to participate, to fit in, to be part of the community. And to not do that would mean being excluded, being ridiculed, being put on the outside. So there was definitely social pressure there. I'm sure there was financial pressure. If you think about trying to, to work or, or be part of the uh, commerce that was happening in the, in the city, and if maybe you were excluded, excluded because you're a Christian and you can't work or you can't make money, so there was financial maybe consequences to that. Uh, there could have been family pressure where families were divided. Some were worshiping this way, some another. And as we mentioned, there was just a very real physical danger that was happening around them. So while I don't want to justify that, I, I think the beauty of Scripture is we can take that very same pressure 
that they were feeling in the first century, and we can move that right into 2023, and we recognize that we have the, it doesn't look exactly the same, but in essence, we're dealing with the same kind of pressure to compromise in the areas of our faith, of we look at what's happening in our world related to sexuality and sexual issues. We look at idolatry in general. Certainly there's very few of us that have any kind of idol, uh, wooden idol on our mantle or whatever. But if we are honest with ourselves, we are an idol idolatrous people. There are things that we let creep in there, whether it's money or position or family, job, reputation, any of these things can supersede our dependence and our reliance and who God is in our life. So this idea of what the, uh, the church in Pergamum was dealing with was not unique in the first century and it's not unique to us today. And so that's Jesus' rebuke of, of the church there in Pergamum. And he offers a solution. This is the next step in our pattern. There was always some way to move through whatever the issue is that Jesus is calling out. And I don't believe that the, the answer from Jesus could be any simpler. If you look there in Revelation 2, it's a one-word solution, which is what? Repent. Repent. When you recognize that you've walked away, that you've compromised, that you've moved the wrong direction, that you've stepped out from my authority, whatever it might be, repent. Now, here's one of the things I recognize about re repentance uh, it's misunderstood, and it's easier said than done. Uh, repentance, I hope, would start here this morning, that there may be somebody, maybe many somebodies would recognize that you're at a point that God's calling you to repentance. But here's the other thing I know. It doesn't end here this morning. You may have that sense of needing to repent, but it's more than just sitting here and feeling bad. Biblical repentance is not just regret. It's not just feeling bad that something happened. Um, it's more than that. And so it reminds me, funny enough, uh, I am a, somewhat of a fan of the TV show The Office. Am I alone? Is, is there anybody else that's a fan of The Office? Okay. It's not for everybody, I realize. So I, but, but I do enjoy it. And there's an episode in... Um, on, on this TV show where Michael Scott, who is the, the boss in the office, has gotten himself into some financial uh, problems. Huge debt, huge financial debt. Uh, his girlfriend actually has caused most of the problems, uh, spent, maxed out all his credit cards. And so he's trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to get out from under this debt. And so he, someone in the office uh, tells him, you know, Michael... All you need to do is declare bankruptcy. It's like a do-over. You just, you just do it. You get to start over fresh. And he's like, all right, that sounds good. So he steps out into the office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> and then he goes and sits down in his office. And one of the accountants comes over to him and he says, hey, Michael, uh, you can't just say that and have it be true. He goes, I didn't say it. I declared it. But we, we recognize that that even, 
you know, we don't want to make light of bankruptcy for those of you that maybe have dealt with that. But the reality is it's not just enough to say, I declare bankruptcy. There's, there's more to it than that. And I would suggest when it comes to repentance that there's more that, to it than just saying, I feel bad, God, I repent. Biblical repentance requires a reorientation of our life, our values, how I'm going to do things. So it means living in a new way. So when I decide that I have, I have compromised, I've moved off the path with God, whatever it might look like for you, repentance, real biblical repentance is acknowledging it certainly and then moving in a new direction, reorienting uh, our life. In fact, I just, from, from the uh, Bible dictionary, let me read the definition of repentance. In its fullest sense, it is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. Recognizing that I have, I have been in a bad place and I'm going to move in a new direction in the future. That's repentance. And that's Jesus' solution to those in Pergamum who have compromised their faith. So that's, that's lovely. That's a pretty easy understanding of what Jesus was talking about. So I want to hone in on a couple things this morning and, and we'll be done. The first is this. There is a real pressure, a real pressure in our world to compromise. Now what it looks like for you may be different uh, to me, but here's the reality. God calls us to holiness. This, his call to holiness back in Leviticus, back in the Old Testament, doesn't stop. It continues to be an issue that we need to deal with. He calls us to be separate from what the world is about. And I wanted to give a, a couple of New Testament examples of that. The first is in uh, 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I think it will be on the screen here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. It says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. So that's the pressure that we experience to, to compromise, that the world, these desires that we have, the, the lust of our eyes, the desire for something uh, different than what God has established is, again, not new, and it's what the, the world churns that up uh, in us. And then Colossians chapter 3 Here's another example of that. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. So there's our call. Our call is still continues to be to be holy before God. But compromise, that, that pressure is constantly uh, in front of us. And there's this idea of... Uh, the way it fleshes itself out a lot of times in our life is this idea of, of syncretism, that we take our Christian faith and we start kind of pulling different things that sound good and we build, we build kind of a new faith that makes sense to us, 
because the, because the gospel itself is uh, offensive to people or it doesn't sound right. Like, so we, we build something that's, that feels good to us. But it involves compromise. It involves moving away from the word of God and what he has established to be true. But we, we do that. Churches can do this. Churches can do this. Uh, a lot of times um, it, it looks like if, if, if it works, if it draws a crowd, it must be good. So as long as we're drawing a crowd, we must be hitting the nail on the head. Or if churches talk more about strategy, like how we're going to build our church, more than we talk about the gospel or, or theology, that's, that's a problem. It happens on an individual level that we, maybe we become convinced well, Christianity is so exclusive. You know, there's got to be more than one way to get to God. So we start building and tinkering with it until it feels like something that we like. Or there's this idea that we, we want to seek just to be comfortable. We seek comfort uh, over conflict. We seek comfort over going deeper or having a greater commitment. Because, yeah, if I do that, it's going to require me changing up my schedule or we're going to have to look different as a family if we do this. And so I just, I, I don't, I'm not ready to go and make that step. So we're, we're, we're seeking that comfort and ease over going deeper. And there really is a real tendency towards idolatry. I mentioned this earlier. Money, possessions, positions, anything that we would set up in our life that takes the place of God in our life becomes an idol. And I want to be careful about pulling out real specifics because I, I think uh, to a large degree we, we may struggle with, you know, different, some of the different specific things. But the reality is Satan hasn't changed his strategy much at all. Money, sex, power become the things that set themselves up in our life and become those idols in our life. So... I do know this. I do know that our natural tendency, if, if we're not intentional about our life and we're not working at it, our natural tendency is to move towards compromise, is to move away from what God has established to be true and right. But I also know this, that one of our most powerful resources on our faith journey is the people that we have around us. And so I know this becomes kind of like a broken record here at First Baptist, but that's why we believe so strongly in group life. Because those people that we put around us are the ones, not only will they be there to pick up the pieces when we do compromise and get us back moving in the right direction, but they can help us stay on the path in the first place. So it's essential that we have people around us that are encouraging, supporting, praying, and walking with us both through the good and in our attempts to live faithfully for God and also to be there when we struggle and when that compromise does creep into our life. We can't do it in isolation. It just doesn't happen. We need those people around us. So compromise, we've got to beware of the pressure to compromise. And then we also need to recognize that God has promises for those of us that would hear, obey, and follow through. If we will overcome, God has great, a great promise uh, for us. One of the interesting things I felt like in this letter that stuck out to me, and I don't know if it did to you so much, but I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, what Jesus doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you Christians, get out of there. Go find a, go find a better place. He doesn't say that. 
He says, I know where you live. I know what's happening there. And I, he would say the same thing to us today. I know where you live. He's not asking us to flee or to find an easier, more comfortable place. He's asking us to live faithfully where we are. Now, I, I do believe that there are times where God makes it clear that we're going to be moving on to another place. And that kind of, that, that, certainly that happens. But I just think it's interesting in this particular context that uh, Jesus doesn't say that. And I think one of the reasons is Jesus knows it doesn't matter where you go. You can run away from it here. You're going to run into it someplace else. Learn to be faithful, live faithfully where you are. So he offers a couple promises. I want to touch on these as we, as we wrap up. The first thing he says for those that will overcome and those who are victorious, he says, I will give you some of the hidden manna. Now, Peter said at the beginning of this series that we weren't going to push into the real, you know, deep uh, things of revelation like the bowls and scrolls and beasts and all that. But here in chapter 2, we have a couple of interesting things at least that we, look, we need to look at and see what this is all about. So when Jesus says to those that will overcome, I will give the hidden manna. I don't know what you think about. Some of you that have uh, maybe a more uh, complete Bible history throughout your life, you may remember the Old Testament story of walking through the desert and the manna that God provided. Others of you, you might not even know what manna is. But if we go back to the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel were wandering through the desert, God provided each day manna that they, could, that they could go out and pick up. They could use it to make bread, and it sustained them through the 40 years in the desert. And so my immediate thought when I think about the hidden manna is I think about the provision of God. God's, God's provision in the past, what God did for the children of Israel, his faithfulness, in difficult times, the sufficiency of Christ, his, his gift, God's gift of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection that gives me what I need today, his grace, his power in my life that allows me to live like he wants me to live. This is God's gift to me to provide what I need and a recognition that in the future God is going to provide exactly what I need. Now, the thing about the hidden part is sometimes these are things that we're, you know, it's not like it's physical that we, we're not going out into the, into the yard and scooping it up and making bread with it. But God, God's promised to provide what we need, the sustenance that we need to live and to follow him, past, present, and future. And then the second thing he talks about is a white stone. Uh, so let me say this about the white stone with the name on it. Uh, we want to be careful at least about building anything super specific into this interpretation because this is the only place in the whole Bible that we see this mentioned. So I want to be, be careful about that. Having said that, uh, I think there are some pow there's a powerful, uh, some powerful symbols that, that we can uh, grasp from this. And there's, throughout, throughout the years, people have tried to kind of nail down what this might be referring to. Uh, some, of the, some of the thoughts are better than others. Uh, but certainly in that first century, there's people that would carry uh, some kind of charm. Uh, sometimes it was a stone that they would carry for good luck or just to, that they would have good fortune. Um, also in the first century, uh, when they had trials, the jurors would be given a white stone and a black stone to cast their vote for guilt or innocence. And the white stone was innocent. The black stone was guilty. Uh, that sounded pretty good too. 
Some people have talked about it referring back into Exodus where the high priest was given a breast piece with stones on it with different names of the tribes of Israel that it may be referred to something related to that. But probably the best one for me was the idea that it was a, a Roman custom in athletic games to give to award the winner of athletic contests with a white stone with their name on it. And it served as the pass or the ticket into the banquet, the award, the ceremony after the games were over. And so I started reflecting on that and I said, man, what a beautiful, if this is, if this is what Jesus is referring to, what a, what a beautiful idea that God offers us if we will remain faithful to him. God offers a, uh, a reward, a, a, a chance to celebrate uh, with him, an invitation to be a part of what he's doing eternally. So I, I, it made me think, actually, of um, Revelation 19. So let me read to you uh, again from Revelation 19. It says, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was giving, given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So it's quite possible that that's what Jesus is referring to here, that this is the invitation to join him for this ultimate uh, wedding ceremony at the end of all things. On that stone is written a name that is known only to the, the person that gets the stone. So again, that's seems kind of weird to us, but the idea of getting a new name isn't necessarily new. If you go through the Bible, we know that Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul. This is not a new idea of getting a new name. And every time that that happened throughout Scripture, the new name was a better indication of what God had for that person for their character, for their purpose, for their role. And so is it possible, just imagine for a moment, that on that day you get a new name. I'm not saying, I, I, hear me now, I'm not saying this is for sure what's going to happen. But if it is possible that one day you would get a new name that would absolutely fulfill God's plan and role and character in your life. What a beautiful picture in a, in a day and age where we are known more by numbers. Our bank account is a number. Our credit card's a number. We're just a number in most other places in, in our world. But here's an opportunity to be known by name intimately by the God who created us. Awesome to think about. So here's a quick review I want you to leave with. Jesus knows where you live. He knows your circumstances. He knows the challenges, the opposition that you're uh, feeling, even the pressure to compromise your faith from time to time. When, when that happens, we need to be honest and be ready to repent. And we need to, it, that it's essential that we have people around us that are going to walk with us through that process. And that if we persevere, God promises to pro provide everything that we need and gives us an invitation to join him eternally to celebrate who he is. So this morning, you may be, feel like you're outside of that, that maybe you have never responded to God's 
invitation to join him to be part of what he's doing in this world right now and what he's doing in the future. And more than anything, we would want you to know that, that God extends that invitation through the good news of who Jesus is. We sang about this morning in a couple of our songs. We were reminded that it's what Jesus did for us that it, when we tie ourselves to him by faith, that he makes us right before God and all of this that Jesus was talking about comes to be true. And so I would, more than anything, would want to extend that invitation to you this morning and also remind you that even if you've made that decision in your life and you find yourself in a place of compromise right now, you are in the right place. Repentance can start this morning and your life can be different as you move ahead. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of who you are. Thanks for the picture of Jesus that we got uh, this morning. Certainly one who uh, comes to take care of business when it comes to sin and what's happening uh, that's outside of what he had established. He's come to judge the world. We also thank you for Jesus that knows where we live, that knows the struggle that we're up against, the, uh, the opposition uh, that we are facing, the, the pressure to compromise. So we thank you for that. God. And then this morning we're grateful for forgiveness that as we come to terms with compromise in our own life that we can repent, that we can move ahead in a new way, that, it, that our life can be different, that the past does not have to control us but we have a new future in front of us. So thank you for that reality today, God. And then, uh, Father, I would just, man, God, I, I would pray that if, if there's people here this morning that have not accepted that invitation to know you personally, that they would take seriously their need to make that step of faith today. Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.